Thank you. We'll begin with a, with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Inspire our hearts and minds, O Lord, with your divine help, so that all that we do and say this day may have you as its source and you as its goal. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you for coming. The bishops met at the spring plenary meeting in Leeds this week. Uh, we met from Monday afternoon until yesterday lunchtime. And uh, we were pleased to welcome the new Bishop of Lancaster uh, to uh, his first plenary meeting. His ordination took place only a week ago, so it was a little bit of a baptism of fire, but I know that uh, Bishop Paul Swarbrick found the uh, uh, fraternity with uh, his fellow bishops uh, a very positive uh, encounter over the last week. I think it's important to note that the Bishops' Conference is not simply just about, about bishops. We have other people there. We have the uh, eparch of the Ukrainian church here in Great Britain, uh, Bishop Hlib. Uh, we also have the eparch of the Syro-Malabar church in Great Britain, uh, uh, Mar Joseph. Uh, we also have the Bishop of uh, uh, the Ordinary of the um, uh, Ordinariate of Our Lady of Walsingham, the Apostolic Administrator of the Forces, because at the moment we're still awaiting uh, an appointment for uh, that post. And we also have the Apostolic Administrator of the Falkland Islands and the Mission Sui Iuris to the South Atlantic. So um, it's a very universal gathering whenever we come together uh, as a Bishop's Conference to look at the work uh, that needs to be done. And how do we do it? We do it, first of all, as always, in a spirit of prayer. Uh, we come together uh, to pray together, first and foremost, as a Bishop's Conference. We, through that prayer and through uh, our, our discussions, discern what is going to be our common witness, both uh, at home and abroad, uh, primarily at home. What are the, the, the important things that we need to look at in this uh, jurisdiction of England and Wales? Uh, but also, how do we engage with the universal church? Um, and we also do it in um, uh, a spirit of collaboration. And so the work that goes on is is done collaboratively uh, across all of the bishops who are part of the conference. Um, and we gathered this week um, uh, with a real gift because uh, a week ago on Monday, uh, our Holy Father Pope Francis published his apostolic exhortation, Gaudete et Exaltate, the call to holiness. And so this gave us a wonderful framework in which to begin our discussions. And you'll see that there is a statement on the reception of Gaudete et exaltate for you to take home uh, with you today. Um, it calls us to realize, it, it reminds us that holiness is not the purview of those who are religious, uh, bishops, priests, deacons, uh, or, or consecrated religious. Holiness is our common vocation as Christians. Uh, we are called by our baptism to live out the gospel of Christ in our lives. And so that, this document unpacks that in a very personal and a wonderful way, um, touching each of our hearts uh, 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 as you read through it. You can see, and as, as I have seen in my own reading of it, how it, it impacts on me as, uh, as a Christian, how uh, my Christian vocation is first and foremost that which I have to live out. And the call to, to holiness, I think, is, is best described in uh, paragraph 14 of the document. Um, I think this is a, a, a wonderful description to be holy does not require being a bishop, a priest, or religious. We are frequently tempted to think that holiness 
is only from those who can withdraw from ordinary affairs to spend much time in prayer. That is not the case. We are all called to be holy by living our lives with love and by bearing witness in everything we do, wherever we find ourselves. Are you called to the consecrated life? Be holy by living out that commitment with joy. Are you married? Be holy by loving and caring for your husband and wife as Christ does for his church. Do you work for a living? Be holy by labouring with integrity and skill in the service of your brothers and sisters. Are you a parent or grandparent? Be holy by patiently teaching the little ones how to follow Jesus. Are you in a position of authority? Be holy by working for the common good and renouncing personal gain. Let the grace of your baptism bear fruit in a path of holiness. I think that that's a wonderful description of how we are all called to the holiness that Christ demands of his followers. And um, the Pope, through this letter, which really did form uh, a framework for us, does unpack, as I said, how we should be holy in all aspects of our life of the church. And one of the ways that we need to be holy is through understanding, through understanding the world through the divine sight that we are given through our baptism. And one of the areas that we looked at this week was the questions of gender. And so I'm going to ask Bishop John now to tell us about the discussions that we had on those issues of gender this week. There is an intense public debate about gender in our country at this time. So we wanted to spend time reflecting on this question. And I think firstly I'd want to emphasise the point that there's a place of welcome for everyone in the Catholic Church. And so we recognise that there are people who don't accept their biological sex and we're concerned about their pastoral care, wish to extend compassion and accompany them in the way that they live out their faith. So I think that's the first important point. In this beautiful exhortation, the Pope tells us that mercy is the beating heart of the gospel. So that's how we approach people and welcome them. Secondly, we want to make a statement of principle about the fact that there is a difference between human beings, male and female. That goes back to the very origins of the Judeo-Christian tradition, that human beings are created in the image of God, male and female. He created them. And therefore we emphasise these foundational differences and the way in which they do shape our understanding. That's in contrast to those who argue that the individual is free to define himself or herself today. And we do use a very important quotation from Pope Francis in Amoris Laetitiae when he emphasises that, and you can read it, but biological sex and the socio-cultural role of sex gender can be distinguished but not separated. And therefore it's this statement of foundation that we make as well as that statement of welcome filled with compassion and mercy. Thank, Thank you, you, Father. Thank you, Bishop John. Going back to the exaltation, one of the things about welcome that the Pope speaks about is uh, about the way in which we welcome those who are not from our country. And one of the things that the bishops prayed about very fervently this week was the situation in Syria and in Gaza. We also kept in our mind the continuing hidden conflicts like that in the Ukraine. And Bishop Kibbe's presence always is a reminder to us 
of the fact that the people of the Ukraine continue to suffer in a very hidden and unreported way now. But Syria and Gaza were very much at the front of our prayer. And one of the things that the church in this country has been doing is working in the community uh, support scheme. And the Pope in the exhortation says, um, for the Christian for whom the only proper attitude is to stand in the shoes of those brothers and sisters of ours who risk their lives to offer a future to their children, we need to realize that this is exactly what Jesus demands of us when he tells us that in welcoming the stranger, we welcome him. And we were very blessed to have Dr. Phil McCarthy, who was on my left this morning with us last week, to talk about the work of Caritas Social Action Network and especially about the community sponsorship scheme, which is now being rolled out uh, across this country through our Catholic Caritas operations in our diocese. So, Dr McCarthy, Phil. Thank you very much. Um, it was a pleasure to be, to be there in Leeds with you this week. Um, I think we all remember Pope Francis' dramatic call in 2015 for every Catholic parish, every community, to welcome uh, a Syrian refugee family into their midst. And uh, then in 2016, Theresa May uh, uh, initiated the Community Sponsorship of Refugees Scheme, which is uh, based on the Canadian model. Since then, Catholic parishes have been taking this up uh, across England and Wales. And we've seen, we have currently have 27 active sponsors seeking either, either who have received families or who intend to do so in the very near future across seven dioceses. And we're just going to show a short film about the very first of these, which was in Flixton in Salford uh, in Greater Manchester. The simple joy of watching his children play with friends was long denied to Samir Hamweer. Going outdoors just wasn't safe. The civil war in Syria levelled their hometown of Homs, making them refugees. They fled bombs and gunfire, seeking sanctuary in neighbouring Lebanon. I got a bunny. But sanctuaries now in Greater Manchester. They're the first Syrian refugees in Britain to be sponsored by a community church as part of an international scheme offering a new start. Samir can't believe his children are safe. When they're happy, I have, I have all the world. I catch the sun or the star in my hand. I, I don't see nothing bad here. All the community smile and uh, uh, they welcome for me and for my family. In the name of the Father, the Son. Senior members of St Monica's Parish in Flixton help house, clothe and support the family. They volunteered to host people escaping Syria after seeing terrible images of those who never reached safety. It's a privilege. And to be frank with you, it's, it's one of those things that in your life you very rarely get the opportunity to, to, to see and to do. When you see the three young children, you can imagine as, the, as bombs are raining down, as various things are happening, you know, just how horrific it would have been. So we've never known it, we've never seen it. It's just lovely that we could do something for them, in a way to save them from the war and everything, to save them children, that they'll grow up in a peaceful environment and that they have settled really well. They've got lives yeah. they wouldn't otherwise have had. Yeah, yeah. Samir was a chef before the war in Syria, a skill he's turned to cooking for other refugees and homeless people at a church soup kitchen, a way of giving back to his adopted community. And soon he'll start a job where he plans to give even more back. Rob Smith, ITV News, Flixton. Thank you. I think that's a rather lovely example of the, th the difference that parishes can make. And I'm, I've been amazed 
through this scheme to see the vibrancy of some of our parishes and communities that, and the lengths to which they go, prepared to go in order to welcome the stranger. Just last week, the Catholic Women's League contacted me and said they collected £12,000 to support the scheme. So the generosity of the community continues to amaze me. One of the other things that I know that Phil and his network are looking at for the bishops is a, a practical response to homelessness in this country. And again, going back to the exhortation, uh, the Pope says in paragraph 98, if I encounter a person sleeping outdoors in a cold night, I can view him or her as an annoyance, an idler, an obstacle in my path, a troubling sight, a problem for politicians to sort out, or even a piece of refuse cluttering a public space. Or I can respond with faith and charity and see in this person a, a human being with a dignity identical to my own, a creature infinitely loved by the Father, an image of God, a brother or sister redeemed by Jesus Christ. That is what it is to be a Christian. Can holiness somehow be understood apart from this lively recognition of the dignity of each human being? And we hope that uh, the ongoing work of uh, the Caritas Social Action Network in terms of its advocacy for homelessness is something that you'll be reporting on later on, either in this year or, or towards next year. We hope by the end of November, many of our, of our member charities are working hard on these, these issues in practical ways every day. What we want to do is to give them some, some renewed uh, Catholic social thought and advocacy in this area. Thank you very much. Turning to the beginning of the exhortation again, um, there's this wonderful... Uh, Pithy paragraph. This should excite and encourage us to give all, to give our all, and to embrace that unique plan that God will for each one of us from eternity. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. A quote from the prophecy of Jeremiah. That sense of vocational call is at the heart of the Synod of Bishops that will take place in Rome uh, this uh, October. And uh, the week before Palm Sunday was a special moment in Rome for young people. Each bishop's conference from around the world was invited to send uh, delegates to participate in the youth pre-synod. This is something that the Synod of Bishops has never done before. It was a trial uh, uh, to see whether it would work or not. And uh, this conference of England and Wales uh, asked Isaac Withers, who is with us at the end of the table here, to uh, represent the bishops of this country and the youth of this country, more importantly, uh, at that meeting and uh, to report back on uh, what occurred at that very, very precious time. So, Isaac, if you'd like to tell us about that now. Yes, yeah, so it, it was a great um, privilege to represent England and Wales at, at the Synod. Um, as Father Chris said, it was a meeting of young people in Rome um, for a week before Palm Sunday. Uh, to really help the bishops uh, to inform their their synod in uh, October. So um, how this sort of worked out was that there were 300 young people in a complex in Rome. It was a really international gathering with people from all over the world. Um, there was a lot of sort of World Youth Day energy to it, but it was really um, practical. Um, so my main question going into the week was how much the Holy See would really let us do, how much they would let us um, lead, or, or how much we would be allowed to say. Um, and my uh, expectations were really uh, exceeded. Um, I went very much just ready to voice the, the UK, but became part of this sort of wider experience. Um, so on the Monday, we had four hours with Pope Francis in the, a really intimate setting, um, just the 300 of us and him. Um, so clearly it was very important um, for him to, to spend that amount of time with us. He really just encouraged us to speak very boldly and honestly, um, especially to the members who were atheists or of other faiths who he'd invited there to really get an outside perspective on the church um, to be voiced. Um, so he just really called us to be very bold in what we said. 
Um, and he really framed that, that week in the Synod as a whole as a dialogue between the young and the old. He really championed the voice of young people as sort of a prophetic voice in the church, but really encouraged us to, to be in dialogue with older people and to look at our roots and to, to know where we came from. Um, and then after that, the process was roughly two days of sort of smaller language groups and then uh, a similar amount of time drafting a document. Um, so in my, my smaller group, it was, you know, every group was kind of in incredibly international. So in mine, there was someone from Iran and Malawi and Taiwan and Sierra Leone and the Philippines. And, and you know, it was a really, uh, yeah, international experience of the church. And the conversations were completely um, wide open. So my broad takeaway from, from the conversational side of it was that young people in uh, developing nations and developed nations had very different um, priorities. So something that Pope Francis had, had said to us when he spoke to us was that um, he talked about the Italian youth unemployment rate at 25% nationally and at 50% in some regions. And he linked this to sort of high suicide rates and substance abuse rates um, and referred to a disorientated generation. So it seemed that that was reflected in our conversations that in uh, in Western countries and developed nations that, that young people seem to be more worried about sort of fulfillment. Um, and it wasn't that they didn't have opportunities or options, but just sort of more of an existential um, issue of meaning. Um, and then with the developed countries, um, the man from Sierra Leone who was in my group said something interesting that, that young people were really just trying to succeed in his country. They were just trying to make it. They were just trying to get out of the struggle and to, to achieve wealth. Um, and that if the church wasn't going to help them in that, that they were going to look elsewhere. Um, so it was that sort of um, hierarchy of needs and a real feeling that there was a distinct difference between sort of people looking for fulfillment and then people who had more um, primary needs. Um, and then I was selected to be part of the drafting team of that document, which was a really incredible experience. So, so I moved from being on the conversational side of the synod to the listening side. And it was then that I realized that everyone from the Holy See was going to let us to let the young people do sort of every aspect of this process that we were really going to to do all of it um so then we were faced with trying to voice everyone um in a document within a couple of days so um this at first looked like a bit of an impossible task but um it became very um yeah very doable to us because it, uh, when young people were talking about the church even though we were from all over the world we all seemed to be saying the same thing, um, so that they wanted uh, young people to be offered leadership in the church, that they wanted a creative voice, that they um, experienced energy in the church, often outside of the parish, um, and that they wanted the church to communicate its ideas and its teachings in modern and accessible ways. Um, so there seemed to be sort of a consensus and a unity in, in what people said when they were talking about the church. Um, and then from then on, it was very much us presenting that draft, um, taking criticism from the group, editing again, uh, there was a lot of staying up late until sort of 2 a.m. or beyond, and it felt very much like writing my dissertation, but it was really, really good fun. Um, so there was a lot of energy to it, but it was also really a lot of work. Um, and then at the reading of the second draft, there was a quite a profound moment that we as writers didn't expect when, when we concluded, and there was a mostly standing ovation from the room of, of the 300 that were there, and from Cardinal Baldessari, who's the sort of overseer of the whole synod. Um, so there was a real energy and a joy, and we really felt that we'd represented people well, and I could see that reflected in, in the team at the Holy See, that they'd really um, treasured that week too. So the document went on to be presented at Mass on Palm Sunday to the Pope, and it goes to the Synod in October. Um, uh, it go, it's not the only document that's going to inform their, their Synod, but it is an important one, and it was clearly very important to Pope Francis. Um, so my main takeaway from it was that it was a really substantive week, that it was much more... Um, we, we were able to do much more than I thought we were going to be able to do, and we were taken really seriously by the hierarchy of the church, and it was frequently quite moving. Um, and so it, it was a really profound experience of the church, and it was a joy to represent England and Wales, and 
and to see that even though that we're you know small nations that we as part of the church are are really part of a wider conversation thank you very much isaac the bishops last week also looked forward to um, the Eucharistic Congress in Liverpool, um, Adoramus. Uh, again, coming back to the uh, um, exhortation, meeting Jesus in the scriptures leads us to the Eucharist, where the written word attains its greatest efficacy, for there the living word is truly present. In the Eucharist, the one true God receives the greatest worship the world can give him, for it is Christ himself who is offered. Adoramus is um, our response to the uh, International Eucharistic Congress that took place in Cebu in 2016. It's the desire of the Holy See that each time there's an International Eucharistic Congress, local churches hold their own, annual con uh, their own national congresses before the next International Congress, which will take place in 2020 in Budapest. So this year we will gather in September uh, in Liverpool at the Echo Arena for um, three days of celebration learning and understanding of the Eucharist. And we've called it a Congress and Pilgrimage because um, the pilgrimage aspect of it is that people will gather and then they will disperse. Uh, the ancient idea of pilgrimage is that you walk and or you journey towards a place where there is some form of celebration. So the, the process has already begun in many of our parishes around the country. The preparatory period uh, asks that parishes adopt uh, a, a spiritual preparation uh, through uh, adoration within their, in, within their own communities as a prayerful experience of encountering the risen Christ. And then in, in Liverpool uh, uh, in September there will be three days. Uh, there will be a theological symposium where we will learn about the Eucharist and the understanding that we have of the Eucharist as the central part of our church. Um, we will adore the Lord uh, um, and it's hoped that over 10,000 people will gather uh, in the Echo Arena uh, for that moment of adoration. And uh, then we will move from there the following day to the Congress Mass and the procession of the Blessed Sacrament through the streets of Liverpool. And then after that people will disperse, they will come away from Liverpool but they will be enriched and invigorated uh, by that experience to proclaim Christ in the world. Uh, that's the great hope of, um, of the Eucharistic Congress, that it's part of our new evangelization, uh, that it's not simply what I call a fizz-bang moment in the life of the church, but it has uh, a rootedness in the hearts and in uh, the minds of everybody who participates within it. So um, there was a lot of discussion about, about, about uh, Adoramus, about how things are going in the diocese, the way in which uh, uh, parishes are participating in it. And even this morning, I received this from um, the uh, uh, Redemptorist Publications, Adoramus Extra, which has just been published, this is hot off the press, as a, a, a tool and uh, something that parishes can use uh, and individuals can use in their personal preparation for uh, that wonderful moment uh, in September in Liverpool, when we will be very much witnessing to our faith and hopefully, as the exhortation tells us, to grow in that holiness uh, so that we can listen to Christ. And again, one of the other things that the bishops uh, spoke about this week, um, and it's a sort of follow-on from uh, the whole idea of, of, of this um, exterior movement from an interior understanding of Christ to our witness within the world, uh, is to designate the year 2020 as a year of refreshed listening to the Word of God, uh, the God who speaks. 
you can see the proposal on the proposal sheet that you have here. Um, but it says again in the exhortation, the prayerful reading of God's word, which is sweeter than honey, is yet a two-edged sword, which enables us to pause and listen to the voice of the master. It becomes a lamp for our steps and a light for our path. As the bishops of India have reminded us, devotion to the word of God is not simply one of many devotions, beautiful but somewhat optional. It goes to the very heart and identity of the Christian life. The word has the power to transform lives. So 2020 will be uh, a, an important moment of uh, renewal in our understanding of the scriptures uh, in this country. And uh, obviously uh, it was uh, agreed that we would adopt that at the plenary meeting and the planning now will take place to ensure that that's part of our ongoing witness to Christ in the world. So it was a full meeting. There was a lot of uh, things discussed. But above all, um, the prayerful aspect of it brought about this whole necessity for us to pray for peace in the world. And so the very last thing that the bishops wanted to do was to propose to this country this prayer for peace, which is offered as the fourth uh, point on your sheets this morning. Uh, peace comes from knowing Christ. And uh, if we know Christ and we understand peace, then we will grow in holiness, which is what our Holy Father has exhorted us to do through the apostolic exhortation.